Hi friends, welcome to another episode of the Mystery Bible on Podcast. As always, we're so glad you're here and we thank you for joining us. You have the trifecta back. You have myself, Mr. Dan, and Mr. Brian. And we're so happy to be back together and uh, having conversations again together after the hiatus and the disruption of the holidays. I did the last episode solo. Hopefully you all enjoyed that one on demonic possession. If you haven't listened to it, uh, I encourage you to go listen to it. Uh, But we're glad to be back together for more dynamic and interesting conversation. We thank you for the recent uh, communications and encouragement we've received. We thank you for all the engagement we've received with this podcast. We were talking just before we hit record on that this whole effort is for Christ. It's for the for His glory. We're just uh, putting it out there for Him to use. And we think about each of you, especially those we know and knowing that there are many of you who we don't know, we think about you when we think about the topics and what to discuss. And it really is uh, just an act of joy and love for us to be able to talk about true and important things and know that you all are listening and engaging and it's, it's such a blessing to us. So thanks so much. We are on, I think, episode 11. And that's, uh, that's amazing. That's so much, uh, so much fun that we've made it that far. So tonight we're going to talk about uh, a topic that is less spooky than some, but I think a very important topic. And it's one that we have felt really needs to be out there and addressed. And it's actually a topic that's been requested by a handful of different audience members. We are discussing the Bible, which shouldn't be a surprise to you, but specifically we are discussing why you can trust your Bible. And we're going to discuss, you know, God willing, we, you know, we don't have it highly organized, but we have a lot of thoughts and knowledge and background and ideas swirling around between the three of us. So we want to talk about the prophetic evidence for the veracity of scripture. We want to talk about what scripture says about itself. We want to talk about the archaeological evidence for scripture. And we want to talk about the textual evidence for scripture. And we'll probably discuss a little bit some of the criticisms around scripture and why we reject those criticisms. So this should be, uh, for some of you, there will be some review material if you're already familiar with these topics, but I I think it's worth having the refresher on. And for others of you, this will be completely new stuff. So we we look forward to having you along with us on this journey. Don't worry. uh, For those of you who are here for the spooky stuff, for for the woo, for the... uh, for the you know the the creepy topics, we still want to continue to address those hard issues. But but again, we've had some requests for this, and we think it's a very worthwhile discussion to say, can you trust your Bible? Why or why not? And why do we believe it? And each of us has kind of our own journey on how we came to the conclusions that we did. So let's uh, start with Brian. And um, Brian, I, I I I'd like to. I'd like it if if you could share a little bit about your journey and understanding what the Bible is and how you arrived at a place of of uh, believing that it is not just a really meaningful spiritual text, but also a really important historically accurate text. And if there's anything that you want to share, particularly on that, feel free, and we'll uh, we'll bring Dan in shortly to kind of talk about his own journey along those lines. And then and, uh, along the way, guys, for those of you who are listening, we will throw out a lot of different resources. We'll name names. We'll mention books. 
that's if I, 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 I should be one of these guys that puts links in the show notes. God willing, if I remember, I'll put them in. Otherwise, I'll put them on the chat thread later on the Telegram group. Eventually, but, uh, eventually, we'll have a website that's yeah, on my we, plate, and we we'll keep have saying lots that. of links it's, up there. So we'll get to there. Yeah, we're, we're getting we, there. We, we want you to have these resources. If you don't have them, these are good resources to have. You know, if you're a parent, these are the kinds of resources that your kids should be reading. I had the great benefit of growing up with a lot of good resources and just books that I could read that gave me a, a real deep trust in scripture along the way. So Brian, share just a, a few minutes of your journey with scripture and understanding what it is. And then Dan, yours, and then I'll kind of try to point, get, get us off and running down different topics with uh, different questions. Well, my, my experience with scripture, I, I, I did not grow up in a Christian home. I had very little exposure to anything related to the Bible. Uh, I do remember back when I was in first grade, there was a good news Bible club that I attended for a little while. And that was, you know, great. And I liked the cookies and liked the flannel graph. And that was a lot of fun. That wasn't very, you know, textually relevant um, in most cases. And so my first real exposure to reading anything in the Bible was a English class in college or in high school. And we read the book of Ecclesiastes and we talked about it. And before that time, I had not really read. I don't know that I'd read any of the Bible, to be honest. I just got to say, that's a pretty epic English class that goes through Ecclesiastes. I mean, I had some good English teachers, but we, yeah. we never hit Ecclesiastes I mean, we, on our reading list. This, this was a good class. It was called Advanced English, with you know, a very simple name, but it was basically a philosophy class where we hit various texts from different uh, religious and or philosophical traditions, and we talked about them. And so that's when I first was introduced to Ecclesiastes. Now, the teacher was not introducing it from a Christian perspective per se, or even a Jewish perspective per se. And he focused a lot more on the ideas that th there's a lot of futility in the world and, you know, you keep going through the motions and nothing really good comes of it and that kind of a thing, as opposed to the end of the book where the goal is, you know, you serve God and you do what God needs you to do and it'll be okay in the end. So, so I'm I'm guessing, I mean, knowing you, I didn't know you in high school, obviously, but knowing you, I'm so guessing that, older than that you, <laughs> and we didn't, you know, we didn't live in the same places or grew up in the same areas, but I, I'm assuming knowing you that you probably kind of ate that up. I did. I did. I love that class. Even back when I was in junior high, there was a class that they just titled thinking class. And we went over the cave by Plato. We went over some Machiavelli. Uh, we went over The Prince by Machiavelli as a seventh grader. And it was amazing. I ate that stuff up. I still remember those things. It was it was great. But, you know, from the Bible perspective, I got introduced to Christianity in a German, in Germany, in a, when I was in the military, in a small church that was an independent fundamental Baptist church. So... For those of you who are not familiar with the specific kind of, I don't know, distinctives of that church, they are King James only. So the King James only Bible in English is the only one that you should be reading. It's the only one that's trustworthy. And they had a lot of little legalistic type of things. And if you've been in that type of a of a denomination or you're in that type of a denomination. Now I'm not saying negative things about it. 
I'm I'm just saying this is this is the kind of things that they had. And the idea that the King James only they had a lot of reasons why it was the only valid or or safe or true version of scripture in English. And and, and just to clarify if you if you're kind of having background distractions or anything when we say when Brian says the King James only he's describing the perspective of the church that he originally started Correct. with, that's Correct. not the re- the recommendation or the no. position that and we're I, taking. In and this I podcast. am definitely not like I'm not I'm not in that place at all. I read a lot of different versions of translations. I read what I can of original languages and translations of original languages that are created by scholars and and all that sort of thing. And one of the things that I have noticed over the years that and to me this is a God thing because. When you look at the new information that's come out, which comes from the Ugaritic texts from Babylon and the Dead Sea Scrolls or Qumran Scrolls, however you would like to characterize those, those are really, really recent. And to me, that says God preserved those documents as well as the ones that we already had. And they don't, every time we get new documents, they don't contradict or change what we already knew about scripture, they enhance it and they solidify it. They reinforce it. Right. And I think there's a general theme in terms of Christian archaeology or just archaeology in general that has any, that informs the, the biblical worldview in any way. I guess since about the, about since world war two, the explosion of not, and I know we've talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm talking beyond the Dead Sea Scrolls. The amount of manuscript evidence, text evidence, archaeological discovery, Sumerian, Babylonian, Ugaritic. Well, like the Ugaritic these... texts, they were originally discovered in 1928. But not but translated they weren't, they weren't really translated. And they keep finding like in the 50s, in the 70s, in the 90s, they found more and more tablets. They weren't really translated until the late 90s. So the fact that we found them in 1928, I mean, the 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 Qumran scrolls we found in 1947 initially, and a lot of them were translated because they were already in languages that we knew. Mm-hmm. And so we had more information coming out, but they continue to find more of them and they continue to translate more of them. And Ugaritic... Like now you can buy a book that was written in 2012 called An Introduction to Ugaritic. In 2007, another guy wrote a book called A Primer on Ugaritic. Like we've learned so much information that it's 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 basically new information. But since it was all in the same time frame as the biblical authors, it gives us a window and sometimes it gives us corroboration of things that are in the Bible, but it gives us a window into the culture and the whole worldview that the biblical authors and the biblical receivers of that data had at the time. And to me, it's just amazing. It feels like God is continuing to open up more information for us to understand, yes, in fact, what I gave you is true. And I'm going to just give you more little hints here and there about why it's true and how you can talk to people who don't believe it or don't think it's true and say, well, you need to look at this and you need to look at that and you need to look at this other thing. And it will show you that, in fact, 
you cannot dismiss this out of hand. You cannot say it's all myth. Because every time we turn around, we find new archaeological evidence that proves and shows that the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, is the most accurate historical document that we have in our hands today, bar and we'll, none. And, and I completely agree. And we'll talk specifically about some of the speci- some of the specific finds, specific documentation, specific areas, and, uh, and and give some recommendations on where to learn more about these things without having to learn Ukaritic, for example. So that's a, a great <laughs> introduction, um, and appreciate that, Dan. Why don't you take a few minutes and share a little bit about your uh, your just your journey with scripture, your understanding of of scripture, and what it is to the 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 Christian or the or the person reading the Bible, and how you've come to uh, understand your how you've come to a place of of faith in the text and um, that it is the Word of God. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, I I grew up in a Christian home, so I I grew up you know reading the Bible, being familiar with the Bible. But uh, the older I got and the more my faith became my own instead of just uh, my parents' faith, uh, you know, I looked at, at, the, at the Bible and uh, started researching and studying, you know, is this something that can be really, really be trusted? And, and you, uh, the older you get and you realize that there's all these religions around the world and all these different people who think and believe different things and you know, you know Christians who hold to their faith very strongly, but you also know all these other people that hold to their faith very strongly or hold to their lack of faith very strongly. And so, you know, I wanted to be more than just um, a blind faith. And and certainly being a Christian requires faith, right? There are, there are things that we we can't see and know. And we you, at some point you do have to take a step of faith and just trust God. But at the same time, the Christian faith is not one that is separate from reason. And it's not one that where you just have to, you know, hand wave things and say, well, yeah, it doesn't really add up, but I'm going to just believe it anyway. And when you look at the the Bible and scripture, the more you dig into it, the more you uh, research it, the more you see how well it stands up and how it, it really can be trusted. Um, you know, the, just a, a couple examples there, right? That a lot of these, the books in the Bible have um, genealogies written out, right? They're they're very careful. They're, they're record keeping. They're um, historical documents. Uh, the beginning of of Luke, okay, Luke writes out in the first four verses about how he's writing a very orderly account and how he's basically explaining how he's researched these events and um, studied them and talked to people, eyewitnesses, and he's, and he's putting together a document so that people can understand what's happened with this person named Jesus and what's going on. And, and then you dig even deeper and you look at uh, the, you know, the fact that these, these gospels were written at a time and, and they reference people by name who were still living at the time. And, you know, there's this, all these, all these things there that, you know, if, if, if it wasn't true, people could have gone and talked to these other people and be like, Oh, did that really happen? Were you really there? And so, 
you know, they it, it wasn't shying away from anything. Um, and then, and then you look at some of the, the events that happened that are recorded about Jesus's life. And some of those things are disputed, but what's interesting is the dispute is not whether or not they happened. The dispute's about the interpretation. So, for example, the empty tomb, right? People didn't go around claiming, oh no, the tomb's not really empty. He's in there. They tried to come up with reasons why the tomb was empty. Or Jesus's miracles, right? They didn't try to say, oh, he didn't really heal the blind or raise the dead. They tried to come up, come up with other reasons for why those things happen. So when you look at um, the historical evidence just within the Bible, within uh, accounts outside the Bible, um, other ancient documents that talk about things that happened, uh, particularly during the New Testament, you, over and over again you get um, the same the same story and you can and piece it all together. So, you know, I came to a point where, like, yeah, the... the uh, this is not something you believe just by closing your eyes and cutting, uh, you know, saying that reason doesn't matter because it's just about faith. Um, but the, the more you research and study it, the more, the more you realize that this really can be trusted. Thanks for that, Dan. And I, I think, I think all three of us here are, if you know us, then, and I'm speaking to the audience here, audience members, if you know us and have heard us teach or spent time with us, or in some cases traveled to other countries with us and spent a whole lot of time with us or been stuck, you know, next to me on an airplane for 10 hours, whether you like it or not, then as Dan has, and some people in the audience have as well, the, then one of the things you'll know about us is we, we like, we nerd out on historical detail we like um, coming to conclusions on our own intellectually. We all like research and we do a tremendous amount of it. And we, we really believe the things that we're saying. When it comes to the Bible, there's a popular narrative, and you'll hear this at a lot of, uh, you know, you'll hear that you won't hear this from scholars. You will not hear this from scholars. You will hear this from people who, uh, read internet forums and think that they're scholars, but don't actually know the research or the evidence that they say, well, the Bible is this old moldy document. We don't really know anything about its origins. It was written by uh, some scribes. And then, you know, maybe they may say, and there was a conspiracy in the Catholic church and we'll throw out some, some Dan Brown citations and the council of Nicaea and this and that. And it was just a, a bunch of guys put a bunch of books together and kind of made mash them up and made them fit. And we have no idea if there were original documents or when they were written. We have no idea what they said or who wrote them. There's all kinds of other gospels that were not included and should have been. And, and it's all just a bunch of bunk and anybody who believes in it is, is, is foolish and blind and, and deluded. That, that is the popular secular narrative around scripture. If you read, you know, Reddit forums or, or other places, that's the kind of stuff you're going to find. And what I want you to hear from us and get from this episode loud and clear is that that is completely false. And it's not just false in an opinion way. It's not just false because we, we don't like that narrative. It's objectively false. And there is no published peer-reviewed biblical uh, scholar or peer-reviewed archaeologist with expertise in these areas 
who really ascribes to any of that. Now, there, what you will find in secular archaeology is a basic assumption that whatever the Bible says isn't true unless it's proven to be true. And as Brian alluded to, then the for secularists, then the the awkward trend is that we're we're uncovering more and more and more and more evidence that it, this stuff is true and historically accurate. Now, as 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 Dan mentioned, your conclusions from that accuracy may differ. Your uh, what you do with that information may differ, but you can't really be intellectually honest and say that the Bible is a highly corrupted document and we don't know if it's accurate and that it was changed and rechanged and it's just this big game of of moldy scroll telephone and and who knows what some scribe put in there or didn't. That's that's objectively false as we know from the historicity of the Bible. So th- there's a, a lot of different areas that we can discuss and a lot of directions we can go. I'll, I'll share j- just very briefly, you know, my journey with scripture. As I mentioned early on, I was raised in a Christian home. Um, We were taught the Bible daily. Uh, It was a normal thing growing up that we read the entire Bible uh, at least every year and attended church and did Bible studies. And so, you know, by the time I was middle school, then we had a pretty good working knowledge of the, the main strokes of scripture because we read the whole thing. My mom would read it to us. You had to be on the couch by 7 a.m. in the summers and earlier than that during the school year because that's how the day started. It started with a daily Bible reading that included the Old Testament, the New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. Some of you are familiar with the one-year Bible. So you know, by the time I hit high school, I had been through the entire text of scripture multiple times. That is not the same thing as knowing all the background and, and you know, all the th- stuff we're talking about tonight, but I had a good working knowledge of scripture. But I also really wanted to find out for myself if I believed the, if I believed this stuff. So I did a lot of reading and a lot of, even as a kid, read a lot of the skeptics and a lot of the critics. I was, I was kind of a weird kid. I, I once won, <laughs> I won a bet in Sunday school class when the Sunday school teacher said, uh, I'll give five bucks to anybody who knows the laws of thermodynamics. And I had already been to enough Answers in Genesis conferences and read enough material that I raised my hand and rattled them off and I got five bucks. And so that was a, a high point for me in you know the, the seventh grade or whatever that was. And, and, and that's just the kind of stuff that you learn if you're looking into creationism and young earth and all this stuff, you, know, you, you get familiar with that material. Um, for those of you who know my wife, Rachel, uh, when we were in the eighth grade, then her family, her, she came up from a missionary family and they had free tickets to a Ken Ham conference. And they said, Rachel, we have an extra ticket. Do you know anybody who would want to go? And she's like, there is this one kid who would probably want to go, but tell him it's not a date. And uh, so I went on a date with Rachel to a Ken Ham conference in the eighth grade. Um, so that was my background, and and it and it continued to grow that way. And I didn't accept the, you know the Bible blindly. I certainly was not a uh, you know closely walking with the Lord all through high school. You know I had I had to kind of t- start taking things very seriously later in college, and that's a little bit of a, a different journey for a different topic. But um, one of the things that really struck me as I when I was walking much more closely with the Lord and, and really following Him uh, as Lord and Savior. I had the opportunity in grad school to go study venture capital because my career is in finance 
in Israel. And I was, I was the, the guy who was just so excited about all the stuff there because I was familiar with the, the landmarks. And, you know, you go, if you've read through the Exodus and Joshua, I went all the way down to Gulf of Aqaba and down to uh, Egypt and kind of traced some of the paths and saw the sites. And I, I already believed that it was true at that point, but it was an incredible event. And I know Dan's been to Israel as well. I'm not sure, Brian, if, if we've discussed that, but uh, it, so I'm not, I don't know if you have. But it was incredible just to see that, like, all this stuff is here. This is a, these are real places and real things. And the more we study and the more we dig, literally, the more we find that absolutely supports that the Bible is an historically accurate document. And so let's um, there's there's a lot of directions we can go. But what I'd like to do is start with. Uh, what is the Bible? How is it structured? And then I'd like to start with just the Old Testament. And we we can't spend you know too much time on any of these, but I want to talk a little bit about the Old Testament and some of the archaeology and some of the stuff that Brian mentioned. And I think we can just kind of chronologically go through the Old Testament and then to the New Testament, some of the textual criticisms. And that's a, a, a phrase that's, that's meaningful. Uh, and then um, And then talk about the resurrection, some of the evidence for that. And um, and I think if we go through it that way, we can we can hit some of the high points and resources. And one one more thing I think might be helpful to the audience just as we start. What is the Bible specifically? What is the Bible to a Christian? Well, we say, well, it's the Word of God. Well, Christ is the Word of God doctrinally. In John one one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made, etc. Jesus is the word of God. Is the Bible Jesus? Well, no, the, the Bible is words on a page from divine inspiration. I like to, it helps me to think the Bible being a subset of Christ. You know, if you had a Venn diagram and there was a, an infinitely large circle that was Christ, then the Bible would be somewhere in there. And the Bible is finite because it's a word of God. It's, it's infinite in wisdom and application and the things and, and you know the the things that it can mean but it's a finite book it's 66 books written over 1500 years give or take by 44 different authors give or take with some time gaps you know between the old and the new testament and and that you know most people who are familiar with it know that but what I, it helps me to think about the bible when i when i say what is it think about it this way imagine that you are on a stage. Let's just say your, your first conscious realization of yourself being is that you're standing on a stage, a brightly lit stage in front of a huge audience. And it's dark and you can't see the audience very well. And this stage, you know, philosophically, it, you know, it includes that every human being has their time on this stage and that's your life. And we know from scripture and we know from uh, Paul's epistles stuff that there's an audience. We're being watched. What we do with our life is being carefully observed, not just by Jesus and not just by humans, but by powers and principalities and clouds of witnesses. And, you know, people have gone before, people have come after and a lot of non-human things. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're familiar with that. So in that context, what is the Bible? Well, the Bible is like some really helpful stage notes so you show up on this stage and the Bible says, look, you've been perfectly cast and perfectly placed at this place in history and God made you who you are and put you here. He hasn't scripted your lines for you. 
even and I, I know in Psalm 139 it says before a word was on my tongue you know it completely and all the days of my life are written in your book that that's foreknowledge he's not he's not breaking our wills he foreknows what we're going to say and do but he hasn't forced us into it we exercise our will and we've been perfectly cast for the role and the role will be not about us but about God regardless of how we live whether we live righteously or unrighteously it will be about God and so what we get is the Bible. And we get other contexts, you know, there's other sources of revelation and God uses his church, but the Bible's like some really helpful stage notes that say, hey, here's some stuff that happened before you in this narrative. And here's some stuff that's going to happen after you. And it's about Jesus and it's about salvation. And everything in these stage notes is really helpful for you to know if you want to, to, to walk out your role on this stage before God and the audience of whatever that may entail in a way that is pleasing to God. And so that you wind up on the right side of this at the end. And it, and it includes everything we need to know in this life about salvation and everything we need to know uh, about what it is to walk as a Christian and what sanctification is. All that is included in scripture. So it's very important to study scripture. It's very important to know scripture. It's not just an historical document. It's an historical document that is divinely inspired and provided by the creator for us to walk before him in righteousness. And you can never run out of wisdom and application from scripture. If I live to be 500 years old and read the Bible in detail every single one of those years, I guarantee you I'd still be learning new stuff on, in year 500 because there's so much application. But that, that being said, the Bible is does not say everything that there is to say about everything in the universe. There's a lot of stuff in there where we have very little detail. There's a lot of topics in there where we sure would like to have more detail, but the Lord in his wisdom just didn't provide it because He that wasn't the thing he wanted us to focus on in this life. And I think we'll get a lot more information uh, after this life. But for this life, what we have is the word of God. We have the church. And, you know, we have prayer and, and those sorts of things to, to show us our way. So that being said, that, that, that's, that's what you need to know about what the Bible is and what it is to a Christian. It, it teaches us about Christ and about ourselves and about the Lord and about his character and about what we're doing here. So, all right, with that out of the way, just kind of orienting us, let's get to the Old Testament. And uh, Brian, I'll start with you. Dan, you'll get a chance to throw anything in there you want. Um, I'll talk about a specific book and some specific resources. And let's just talk about the stuff that goes way, way, way back. When we talk about the Genesis, the, you know, the creation story, um, the, the flood, the, uh, you know, the, the patriarchs, the times in which they lived, this stuff is you know, four or five plus thousand years ago. And there are other ancient civilizations from around that time including, you know, Egypt and Sumeria and, and, um, and other, others coming down the pike. What do we know from archaeological discovery that gives us any sense that the Bible is not just complete myth? So Brian, take it away and we'll, we'll jump in here and there as we see fit. Okay. So we have, we have, you know, at, at one, in one way to look at it, we have the scriptures that we have, right? We have the old Testament, we have the new Testament. The Old Testament, which you could also call the Jewish Bible, is 39 books. And in our Bible, as a Christian, there's 66 books. And these books purport to deal with things from our far distant ancient past. And so as we have found more archaeological evidence, 
such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, also called the Qumran Scrolls. What do we have in the Qumran Scrolls? Well, there's a lot of different kinds of information in those in the that we have found and interpreted so far. But so far, and this may have been updated, I'm not sure, but it, the last time I checked, every single book of the Old Testament or the Jewish Bible has been found in the Qumran Scrolls except the Book of Esther. And when they translate what they find in the Qumran dig, they are the same contextually and, you know, basically they're the same as what we have today. So when I read my English Bible in ESV or NAS or, you know, NIV or even King James, whatever I want, and I read the book of Isaiah, I wind up with essentially the exact same text that someone in 1500 BC or, you know, different areas, different eras, they were reading the same thing. And, and the reason why we keep coming back to the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran Scrolls, and been to Qumran, it's, it's an interesting part in Israel. The, the reason why we keep coming back to that is because this discovery was sensational in terms of biblical accuracy, because there is no argument that the Qumran Scrolls were buried quite a while, meaning at least 100 years, and in some cases, probably hundreds of years before Christ. So they were Correct. buried in what's called the intertestamental period. There's a 400-year time gap between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And somewhere in that time gap, these scrolls were buried. And what that means is the messianic prophecies, for example, that are in the Old Testament had not yet been fulfilled in Christ when these scrolls were buried. And so to have reliable, accurate copies but from before Christ, and then to see that we have the same stuff in our Bibles today, and that the the later uh, manuscripts, like the the Masoretic text, for example, which came later, um, we see the further back we go, the more sense it makes, the more accurate they are, and the more things tend to line up with the the timelines and the chronology. And there's, and it's a uh, it, it so the the Dead Sea Scrolls are a really really well, really big the, deal when it comes to really, the, the veracity of Scripture. I mean, that's really the important part, right? So why we talk about this stuff and why it's important from an archaeological perspective is the fact that the critics, and, and Joel mentioned criticisms a little bit earlier, so the critics are going to make a number of claims, and mainstream archaeologists are going to make a number of claims, and they're going to force scholars who say that the Bible is true to prove every single step along the way. And if I don't see any archaeological evidence for David, for example, the King David, right? We all, as Christians and Jews, take King David as a real historical figure. Well, until very recently, there was no historical archaeological evidence of King David. And so a lot of mainstream archaeologists said King David isn't real. He doesn't exist. There's no evidence. Therefore, this is a myth. There's whole civilizations built on him, but since we haven't found his name Correct. carved into any particular stone, right. he didn't exist. So, because, well, now remember, secular archaeology always starts with that premise that 
unless these Christian weirdos can prove that it's true, we're going to say it's not true. And you're going to get yeah, it's, that. It's a built-in bias. It's a built-in right. bias that they already have. And so, so what do we have now? Today, well, we have three different archaeological discoveries that mention King David in the right time period. And so then they move on and they say, oh, well, what about the Exodus? Well, the Israelites were wandering in the desert for 40 years. There's no archaeological evidence that they were in the desert for 40 years. Therefore, they never were. It's a myth. And we find an archaeological discovery that talks about, and this is a Canaanite tablet that talks about the quote-unquote people of Yahweh. No one else was called the people of Yahweh. There was only one group in all of history that were called the people of Yahweh by non-Jewish people. So, I'll also throw in there, uh, if you want to look up some specific ones, uh, the tomb of Khnumhotep uh, II, the 12th dynasty of Egypt, mm -hmm. in that tomb, which is a relatively recent discovery, it's a 4,000-year-old carving, and it depicts the migration of Semitic people, the Israelites, to Egypt, which would be specific to the book of Genesis around and chapter 37-ish. 37. And that that one right there is huge in terms of- Kind of, of a big deal. It's a big deal. For, I've, I've heard, and, and for a long time, it was true, or, or roughly true, or arguably true, that archaeologists were saying, there's no evidence that the Jewish people were ever in Egypt. There's no evidence yes, of the Exodus. Yes. It turns out, as we keep digging, there's a lot of evidence. One of yes. the, I'll mention it right now, by the way. I'm holding a book in my hands called Unearthing the Bible. It's by uh, Dr. Titus Kennedy. I think he's at Biola University. And um, he, it, this book specifically is 101 archaeological discoveries that bring the Bible to life. And every page or two, it just kind of chronologically goes through these different specific archaeological discovery, tells you what period they're from, why they're important. And there's a couple of things I want to point out about these discoveries. And and remember, when, when Brian said we're, we're talking about the Exodus, he mentioned Canaanite text. Well, Canaanite is not Israel. And then I brought up an Egyptian carving. That's not Israel. What's so shocking to me or so exciting to me about these Old Testament archaeological discoveries is that so many of them come from non-Jewish sources. We have stuff from Assyrian texts and Assyrian finds. We have uh, Babylonian finds. We have Ugaritic. We have Sumerian. We have a lot of Egyptian stuff and a lot of Canaanite stuff that just well, meshes perfectly with the Old Testament narrative and this, of the and people this of Israel. Is, and this is great, right? Because, for example, in American law, you don't allow a spouse to testify against or, or you know, be a character witness for their spouse. It's assumed they're going to always be on the side of their spouse and they won't necessarily be honest about what happened in the case. And so when you find archaeological evidence from other uh, countries that had slightly different worldviews, but were in the same region, had a lot of similarities that corroborate things that are mentioned in the scripture, that corroborates the scripture. And we talked 
uh, before the podcast, we were talking a little bit about, I, I was jokingly saying, you know, God invented blockchain because we have in the scriptures, in the Old Testament specifically, like the Old Testament scripture that is quoted the most in the New Testament is actually a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And then we have Josephus. Again, again pre, predating Christ. The predating Christ. The Septuagint predates Christ. And, that, and that's documented left, right, and center. There's no yeah, argument. There's, the there's no argument. Predates right? Christ. And so then we have Josephus's manuscript. We have some other manuscripts. And then you wind up with what was called, Joel mentioned this before, the Masoretic text. What is the Masoretic text? Well, it is a Jewish copy of the Old Testament. And it wasn't actually published and put out there in the world until about 215 AD. So it doesn't predate Christ. It postdates Christ. But that is what a lot of modern Bible translations have been translated from was this Masoretic text. Because that's all we had. That's what you know, we had. 1700s, now, 1800s, that's what we had. But now, since the discovery of the Qumran scrolls, we have other texts. And we have we already had copies of the Septuagint, but the fact that it predates the Masoretic text, and it is the one that the apostles and Jesus quoted from, that allows us to understand, okay, what was the original scripture that was written? And so what you have is we were joking about, you know, blockchain technology, where you have multiple copies of the Hebrew scriptures. And if someone changes one of the Hebrew scriptures, that one copy gets changed, but the other copies remain the same. And we can look at all of the old copies of things that we have, and we can determine not only which what is the accurate original um, intention and translation of a particular passage, we can also figure out when the one that is now wrong was actually changed. And it's absolutely amazing because if God had just preserved one copy of the scripture and people took it and changed it, we wouldn't know. We'd have no way to verify whether it was accurate historically or not. But because of the way that God spread it out among multiple copies, and this was also a scribal tradition. If a scribe translated a document or a copy to document, they would copy it multiple times and they would distribute those copies so that it wasn't just one copy. And God did basically the same thing. And he distributed multiple copies of the Old Testament. And we have versions of those multiple copies and we can compare them and we can just say, okay, we understand that this is, um, this is what the original text said. And it continually comes up as accurate to what God has preserved and what we have today, which to me, that's it's a it's a miracle, right? It's miraculous that yes, we can look at three thousand to five thousand year old documents, and we look at a English translation that we have today, and it's the same. I mean, yeah. it's it's absolutely amazing when you find what people say. There's lots of contradictions in the Bible, not really, and when you look at things that are discrepancies, you find that they are. Uh, a, a measurement unit here and a grammatical thing here or there 
They aren't anything that ever changes the meaning of a phrase or the doctrine that is being conveyed. Now, hold I that mean, thought for when we come back to the New okay. Testament, because I want to talk very specifically about some specific critics when we get to that, because that's even more powerful when we get to the New Testament portion. I want to point out the Old Testament. You're, when we're talking about the Old Testament, when we're talking about the patriarchs and the stuff in Genesis, we're talking four to 5,000 years ago. It's old old, old stuff. Now, if the Bible had been assembled by a bunch of, uh, you know, R Roman early Catholic priests at the Council of Nicaea and, you know, 300, whatever AD that was, which would literally have been uh, 2000 plus years later, maybe pushing 3000 years later, depending on the context, there's no way they would have known details of life and customs and very specific things from pre-flood or shortly post-flood world. And what we find as we look, as we continue to make archaeological discoveries, is we find that the Old Testament texts and the stories they tell down to the detail are accurate within other discoveries we make. So, for example, we've, if you uh, if you're familiar with the story of Joseph, as I know many of you are. No, that's funny. Talks, I was I was literally just going to mention this, <laughs> and, and, and there's a lot of stuff from Joseph, including uh, including uh, stuff that's been found that talks about Yaakov of El, you know, from that period, and if that could be, you know, it could be Jacob who follows Elohim. That that's because Yaakov is not an Egyptian name; it's it's a Hebrew name. So if you know the story of Joseph, here, here's just a, a random detail. Um, well, he was sold into slavery for twenty pieces of silver. That that seems that. That seems unimportant, but it is mentioned in Genesis. That's what he was sold for. And some people connect it to, you know, Jesus being sold for 30 pieces of silver. And that's really more important in other prophetic contexts. But what we find as we've dug up more from Egyptian culture is we find that around that time, we find lists of slave transactions that happened and a, a slave like Joseph, guess what? The price would have been right about 20 pieces of silver. So is there any way, and, and, and those, those prices changed, by the way, they changed as the, uh, as the prosperity of Egypt rose and fell. So it wasn't always 20 pieces of silver. If some monk in 200 AD was trying to make up some story of Joseph, he would not have had those archaeological discoveries to know what price Joseph would have sold for. And, and that's, that's just an example. There are many, many, many details. And I don't know, Brian, if you're going for the exact well, same one, but there's a that, lot of stuff. Well, like that was the exact same example I was going to mention. But the point I was making is that that very thing, you know, a monk in 200 to 300 AD did not have any access to these documents, but God has revealed them to us, quote unquote, in the last days. We have been able to translate and discover a lot of what I would call corroborating evidence that always upholds the veracity of the scripture. House of yeah. David. Many mainstream archaeologists basically disputed that there was ever a kingdom of David or Solomon. They just didn't exist because <laughs> we didn't have direct evidence that they existed. Until but we since started that, excavating Assyria. And, correct. And it and turns all out sudden, they talk all about have, them. We have the Tel Dan Stella, and we have other documents and other things that are basically written in stone, and they talk about the king of Israel and the king of the house of David. And there's one that was like, Bet David. And it, it was a frag... I mean, it was a crazy story about this stone 
that was written in cuneiform and the Bedouins had it and all these groups were trying to get a hold of it. And so they destroyed it and they broke it into pieces and they handed it out to a bunch of tribesmen and then they sent it off because they're like, no, none of you people are going to get this. Well, over the years, archaeologists bought all the pieces, well, about 75 to 80% of the pieces, and they reassembled this stone that had 31 lines of Canaanite writing on it. And at the bottom of it, it talks about the house of David. It was the one of the first things that corroborated that David was an actually live king living at a certain time in history that corresponds to what the scripture already told us, right? So we find all of these, every time we find a new archaeological dig in the Middle East, we find new information that holds up and props up what the Bible already told us. And some of these, like, like the detail of how much a slave cost. It's a tiny little detail. But all of those little details show the accuracy of the scripture. It is amazing so, so how it's have, been preserved. So You yeah. have the very, very, very big deals that are not details that, that we have specific agreement on. And we've said this kind of stuff before on the podcast where, for example, you will not find an ancient culture that is missing a flood story. They all agree that there was a flood. And in fact, the older Sumerian uh, stuff that we find is uh, more accurate to the biblical account of the flood than the later Sumerians. We see that the Sumerian account of the flood was changing over time, but the biblical account of the flood was not changing over time. That's one example. You also see uh, from some of the very earliest sources, you know, the Enuma Elish, et cetera, you see the accounts of the creation of man. And the, the biblical account, now you get a very different perspective on the creation of man, because these are not people who feared God or who feared Yahweh, who were writing this. But the general sense of the story is very consistent that everybody in the ancient times agreed that there was a creation. They agreed that there was a flood. But then you get well, to- And this, this, this goes back to the idea of, you know, the facts are the facts. The story is the story. How you interpret it can, can vary widely. Or who you think the good guy is. And, exactly. That. Who you think the good guy is can vary yeah. widely. But yeah. the elements of the narrative is the thing that doesn't change between all yeah. of these different yeah. accounts. We have, it's amazing. We have accounts of the Tower of Babel that are not from Jewish sources, for example. Tower of Babel, kind of a big deal. It would make sense that it would be recorded, maybe with different perspectives, but by other ancient cultures. So what we're saying is the main strokes of the of the the stories of the Old Testament are not in a vacuum. They are consistent with all the other ancient archaeology we find. But what I think is more interesting going to uh, Brian's point is when you get these crazy details that there's just no way somebody could have made it up. So here's, I'll give one more example of that, and then we'll hand this over to Dan. And then we'll, and we'll have to move off the Old Testament here shortly because we're uh, 50 plus minutes in. So the... Um, there, there. If you've read the story of Hezekiah, which is um, includes a lot about the prophet Isaiah, then you find that there was a time where Jerusalem was besieged by an evil king called Sennacherib. Well, we have three copies of a uh, of these monuments that Sennacherib made to himself, and they all say the same thing. And he, you know, he wanted three copies of them. We have three versions of this. Maybe there are more out there. 
and they detail his conquests. And one of the things that they detail are his siege of Jerusalem. And he names Hezekiah by name. And says when he translates something like he says, oh, I'm so great. I had Hezekiah stuck in his city like a bird, like a bird in a cage. And we were starving them out. And then it gives the precise amount of uh, tribute that Hezekiah paid to try to get this Syrian army to go away. Well, guess what? The number that Sennacherib gives is the same as the amount of tribute that the, that the Old Testament gives. And there's no way that if some scribe hundreds and hundreds of years later was making that up would know that this was also recorded on Sennacherib's side and that he uh, and that they agree on the amount of tribute that was paid. So you get these you get these you get the enemies of Israel agreeing that the details of what was written down in the Israeli account is the same as what was written down in the Assyrian account. And it what now what Sennacherib leaves out, you know, he he talks a lot about conquering and uh, slaughtering and pillaging, but he talks about sieging Jerusalem and then he changes the subject because what we know from scripture happens right after that is the angel of death comes through the camp and more than 100,000 of his officers and soldiers don't wake up in the morning and the army leaves, uh, you know, basically flees. And, um, and then uh, he's, he's murdered shortly after by his own son. So that's, that's a biblical story that sounds fanciful uh, if you fight from secular perspective, but then we find Assyrian carvings that show that yes, Sennacherib absolutely agrees. He doesn't tell his, about his downfall, but he t- all the details leading up to it, he gets the down to the precise amount of the tribute and the names and the places. Uh, he completely agrees. So those kinds of details, like the uh, the amount of tribute and the fact that it's coming from a non-biblical source and verifying the biblical source, it starts to get real hard for secular archaeologists to say, "Oh, Isaiah didn't exist. Hezekiah didn't exist." Well, guess what? When we were excavating in Jerusalem around the time of Hezekiah, and some of those of you who have been to the Western Wall, you've been in Hezekiah tunnels and stuff like that. As they excavated, they actually found the uh, seal of Isaiah listing Isaiah a prophet, and it was a a document seal there. It has by name, very likely could have been the Isaiah from scripture. And it's like finding his, you know, personal stationery alongside some of Hezekiah's stuff because we know Isaiah was was uh, in that. So it gets really hard to just keep saying this stuff didn't exist, didn't happen when we just keep finding more and more and more. So obviously Brian and I could go on and on. I want to pass it over to Dan to give any um, additional thoughts on Old Testament stuff, why the Old Testament's so interesting, any thoughts you have on the Old Testament, Dan, and then we I'd like to tr- start transitioning to uh, the some of the New Testament topics, and then ultimately we'll get to the resurrection and some of the others. Yeah, well, actually, the stuff I was planning to talk about with the Old Testament transitions us uh, directly into the New Testament. So you know, one of the really cool things about the Old Testament is is just how much um, how much it all points to Christ, and there's a really consistent message throughout the old entire Old Testament that is perfectly weaved together, but it's only perfectly weaved together if Jesus is exactly who he was, right? And, and, and you see in the, in the New Testament, people expecting the Messiah to be something uh, you know, different than what Jesus actually was, because there were so many different prophecies that if you focused on one set of them, 
he might look one way. And if you focus on another set of them, he might look another way. But all of that Old Testament scripture just comes together perfectly in the person of Christ. And so, you know, all those all those prophecies having been fulfilled is, is a whole nother set of, of proof for the Old Testament being uh, accurate and being what it says it is because, you know, all those prophecies are fulfilled in Christ. Uh, another thing there is that um, with the focus on Jesus, Jesus quoted the Old Testament. And if you accept Jesus for who he is said he is, um, there's a famous line by C.S. Lewis that, you know, he gave us really no choice. He was either a lunatic, a liar, or he was actually Lord. And so, you know, you you look at all the evidence around him, and it's it's clear that he was who he said he was, which is uh, God's son. And so him quoting the Old Testament also gives um, further credibility to the Old Testament. And he quotes it about himself. Yes. He quotes it and says, I'm the guy fulfilling this right now. Today, this is fulfilled in your presence. You know, as he reads from Isaiah and then says, yeah, that prophecy, that's happening right now as I stand in front of you because I'm fulfilling it. And yeah. So, and, and there's really cool stories. Bold, bold words. Yeah, very. Uh, you know, with like Isaiah 53, for example, there, there's Isaiah 53 is just so strikingly obvious, uh, obviously about Christ that you hear stories about um, people who grew up Jewish and come across that passage and are convinced that that passage was thrown into the Bible by Christians at a later time. And and they'll go back and research it and find out, no, that Isaiah 53 has been a part of the Old Testament all along. And they'll end up coming to Christ based on that alone, you know, and, and seeing just how, how clearly uh, the Old Testament points to Christ and, and is fulfilled and ultimately all tied together because of who Christ is. And these these pro- these messianic prophecies that are all through the Old Testament, there are, depending on who you ask, there are like 40 to 70 core prophecies and then a lot of prophecies that build on top of those to add more specificity. Uh, you know, it says he'll be born. Will he be born of a virgin? Will he be born of a virgin? in uh, Bethlehem, Ephrata, you know, et, et cetera. And, and then uh, Rachel will be weeping for her children because there will be a mass murder that happens. And so they get more and more and more specific. So these prophecies are all over the Old Testament and they're not, it's not like trying to interpret Nostradamus or something where you read it and you're like, well, that could mean almost anything or nothing or maybe something someday, who knows? These were specific. They said, this guy is going to be born of this family line in this place at about this time. And these things will happen. And he's going to go to Egypt and then he's going to grow up in Nazareth. And it, 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 it just goes on and on and on and on to the point where you cannot mistake this, these prophecies being true of anybody else except Christ. And you will frequently find that there are people who have claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Um, historically, um, it, you know, in, including ancient history and including modern history, but in ancient history, you know, there are documented of several dozen, something you know, 40 plus people who said they were the reincarnation or the second coming of Jesus Christ. But you know what none of them could point to was prophecy because none of them could match the prophecies. Yeah. yeah and some and- of the prophecies interesting in that 
you know, a prophecy about his hands and feet being pierced. Right. That was that prophecy was made before crucifixion Psalm, even Psalm existed. Psalm twenty two, right? Yeah, right. before the Roman practice of crucifixion existed. Right. Yep. Well, and then and then you have you guys you know, heard of Zech, it, Zechariah you, saying he he rides in on the colt of a donkey, et cetera. So Jesus intentionally fulfilled that prophecy, but then there were many prophecies that he could not have been intentional about, like where he was born and to whom and of what line and how he would die. Those are things that he didn't have control over. Go ahead, Brian. I kind of cut you off there. No, no, it's fine. Have you guys heard of the tablet called Gabriel's Revelation? No. So this was this was a tablet that was found, and it predates Christ by a few decades. And so not that long before Christ was born. And it was written on stone, but it was written in ink. So it was kind of an interesting thing. It was... People described it as kind of a Dead Sea Scroll on stone. And they found it. It had two columns in neat columns, similar to the way columns are written in the Torah. And but basically what it talked about was a suffering savior who would be beaten and murdered and all these things for the Jews. And when this was first discovered and translated, the Jewish community that had found it thought that it would be like a huge blow to Christian Christianity, like because this doctrine about a suffering savior existed before Jesus came on the scene. And of course, nobody in Christianity should have been really surprised by that. Well, I would, you know, it's like the Bible talks about in many places, the suffering savior, but the Jews missed it. The first yeah. century Jews did not understand that that's what was going to be coming. So the fact that now we have found a tablet that professes the exact same thing 10 to 30 years before Christ was born, to me, it's like, yeah, yep, that makes sense. God would do that. Um, it just makes the the test, the, the, the prophecies and the fulfillment of the prophecies by Christ yet another touch point that says it was true. He did what he said. He was who he said he was. And he was God incarnate that came down to give us salvation. Yeah. And, you know, Joel mentioned there's, you know, maybe a couple prophecies where if a person was wanting to claim they fulfilled them, they could have done them. Right. You, you could see yeah. yourself on a Self, self-fulfilling group. prophecies, quote unquote. Right. But there's a lot of, you know, I was reading John chapter 19 last week. And man, that chapter alone has a lot of awfully high stakes prophecies that got fulfilled to where, you know, if, if you had been able to make it through your life beyond all odds, and, and I have some numbers, we can get into what those odds are. But even if you could have gotten to that, up to the crucifixion, having fulfilled all the prophecies, it's awfully high stakes to hope that the crucifixion went exactly according to plan because that was prophesied, you know, like needing the Roman soldiers to go ahead and gamble for your clothes instead of ripping them apart. And Um, that you have to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and that the betrayer has to die. And then that a potter's field has to be purchased with that silver. Yeah. Like it's just, that was stuff that was happening, you know, as Jesus was being crucified, he wasn't able to really influence what was going on behind those closed doors. Right. And needing to have the Roman soldiers 
not break any of your bones, which was very rare during a crucifixion. Yeah, because crucifixion, they normally would break their legs to to cause them to suffocate quicker. Right. So there's for for the tiny handful that you could have purposefully fulfilled. There's huge numbers that there's so, no control you could have. I want to throw out there real quick for people as a resource. Dr. Gary Habermas who's an apologist and he's kind of an expert on the resurrection of Christ. So one of his books is called The Resurrection of Christ. He has another one called The Historical Jesus. You should check him out because if you want to know about the crucifixion, about the historical evidence for the crucifixion, he's the guy that you want to you want to know. Dr. And, and Gary Habermas. And I, th- I think we should come back to him when we get to the resurrection specifically, because it is such a, an important topic and he is the guy. And he's not just the guy in that he has a lot to say. He is the guy who carefully assembles the research scholar consensus, including secular scholars, and makes a case that even secular journals who don't buy Christianity really have to wind up agreeing, and in many cases do wind up agreeing, with his take on the resurrection because they all agree on all of the evidence that he's using to put it together. So let's come yeah, back to that. And I want to throw okay. out a, cu- a couple of other really helpful resources for those of you who want to know resources. Uh, a, a very easy to read one is Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. A good story. He's a good speaker. Um, and he talks about his own journey and he was an investigative journalist who did not believe in Christ and then decided to try to debunk him and spent a couple of years going through all the evidence and then wound up coming to Christ as a result and writing a book called The Case for Christ. Good book. If you haven't read it, it's worth a read, even if you're familiar with the topics. And I'll also you know throw what, out there. You know what's interesting about that is that he's not the only one that has done that. He's oh, not the yeah. only one that set out to debunk Christianity and wound up becoming a Christian apologist for Jesus. Well, the next so. one I have in my hot little hands here is uh, Josh McDowell. Uh, oh, there you go. Exactly the same kind of story. He's in university saying, I'm going to prove these these weird Christian people once and for all how how full of it they are. And he winds up writing uh, two, a two volume book called The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And I have the, the new evidence that demands a verdict. It's a, a 1999 copy, a thick book. And he, basically he lays it out and he says, here's the evidence. And you have to come to a conclusion based on this historical evidence of what you're going to do with Christ. And these are rigorously written. These are not just guys throwing about ideas and uh, they're using documented, acceptable historical evidence and and manuscript evidence. And in these cases, it was life-changing for them. And if you know Josh McDowell's background, he has quite a story. We were talking before we hit record on this episode. He, by any secular standard, he is not the guy who should have written this book, if you know his background. But it was life-changing journey for him. So those are some good. Anything by Gary Habermas is going to be helpful. Uh, Case for Christ by Lee Strobel is great. Uh, evidence that demands a verdict is a good one. All of these should be on your shelf, or you should be familiar with them. Especially, and there are things that you should be handing to people who are kind of on the fence, trying to understand a little more about Christianity, not really sure what to do with it. Uh, because when you start getting to this prophetic stuff, there. You just cannot deny that the Old Testament says that a Messiah is going to come and he's going to live, he's going to be born a certain way in a certain line and live a certain way and in certain places and die a certain way and in certain places. And then, and then other things are going to happen and that all those things are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. 
and are very well documented on an historical basis, not just from the New Testament, but from extra biblical sources. If somebody is willing to wrestle that to the ground with intellectual honesty, then they're going to be staring a decision in the face of saying, okay, what do I do with Christ now? Now that I know that this is true, that he was a real guy, that there are many historians outside of scripture that agree that he was a real guy and that his life followed exactly these ancient prophecies that couldn't have applied to anybody else and never have been, have been attributed to anybody else. What do I do now? And that's a, that's the whole point of scripture or one of the main points of scripture is to drive us to these decision points and to force us into, um, into, into, into deciding uh, what, what do we do with this? Who is Christ? And what do we do with Christ now that we know? There are a lot of people who don't want to know. And in that case, if somebody just really doesn't want to know and they just want to go with their narrative that it's all made up, I mean, you can argue with them if you want. It might be a waste of time or it might be time well spent. That's between you and the Lord. But for those who really want to look at it, the evidence is there and those are some helpful resources. Yeah. And let's. this might be a good time to just take a moment and go through some of the statistics of just how impossible it would be for anybody to have ever fulfilled all these prophecies if it wasn't actually Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, Savior of the world, you know, exactly who he said he was. In other words, if you're saying, what are the odds that this guy named Jesus just sort of stumbled into, it just, okay, there's been billions of people who've lived and died. Surely one of them is going to kind of line up with some of these characteristics. So let's grab a handful of prophecies from the Old Testament and just say, okay, what are the odds that somebody born in ancient Palestine area uh, would would have this kind of life? Yeah. So keep in mind, so there, there's a disagreement on the, num the number of prophecies. You know, there's at least 48 major predictions. There's really over, well over 300 different prophecies. But, uh, a guy named uh, Peter W. Stoner, uh, he was a mathematician. He went through and calculated some, some odds. So he said the, uh, the probability of, of fulfilling just eight prophecies is, is about one in 100 million billion, which is, you know, it's, it's not even a real, like a number that we have a name for because it's so big, which is millions of times greater than the total number of people who have ever lived. And he gives a really interesting uh, example to try to put it into some context, although the numbers are so astronomical that even this example is so far beyond what your mind can comprehend, it's, it's hardly even helpful. But it says, it says, if you take that number of silver dollars, you could cover this entire state of Texas to a depth of two feet. And then if you marked just one silver dollar, have a blindfolded person wander through the state, bend down and pick up just one silver dollar, the odds that he picked up the right one is, is the odds of just eight being fulfilled. Okay, so then he goes, in other words, it's not happening on accident. Right. There's no, like beyond there's impossible. no way it's beyond, beyond, beyond impossible. You could, it's the whole, you know, you could have a hundred monkeys and a hundred typewriters for a zillion years and it's just not happening. Yeah. So then he talks about, okay, what are the odds of somebody fulfilling 48 prophecies? And the number is, is one in 10 followed by 157 zeros. 
right? So, I mean, these are numbers so far beyond our comprehension that, you know, it, it, take, it would take a huge leap of faith to try to say, oh, yeah, well, Jesus may have done all that, but I still don't think he said he was who he said he was. And we'll, let's, uh, I want to end when we get to it, saying, was he who he said he was? Because really that comes down to the resurrection. But before we go to the resurrection, I want to take a little time, and, and Dan, thanks for sharing that. I, I, think, I think it's helpful for people to realize these prophecies are so specific and so layered that they really only can apply to Jesus Christ. And they really only can apply to Jesus Christ because he is the fulfillment of the prophecy and he was foretold with divine inspiration, not because he happened to stumble into fulfilling a bunch of prophecies. He he was at the beginning and was inspiring these prophecies that he knew he was going to fulfill, and that was the plan all along. So that's uh, important to know from Scripture. The the pro- There are prophecies in Scripture that have not yet been fulfilled. There are prophecies about um, end times that... Uh, you know, we we may be seeing some of them fulfilled now and in our lifetimes and, and some still to come. So it's very exciting that the Bible has such an accurate track record on prophecy because we can look down the road and know that uh, we have some expectation of what we of, of what we'll see. Although even with Christ, yeah, he fulfilled all the prophecies for anybody who was really paying attention. But there are a lot of people who were paying attention that still didn't like what they saw and still uh, disagreed. So we need to be very. Uh, humble and submitted to scripture to say, I, I can read the prophecy, but if I start forming an expectation for how that, how I think that should be fulfilled, I may miss the point because God has a way of really surprising us and catching us off guard with how he fulfills a prophecy. There were people who spent their lifetimes, their professional lifetimes, pouring over the old Testament uh, trying to understand the Messiah and the messianic prophecies. And then when Jesus showed up, they participated in murdering him. Because they, because he didn't fulfill the prophecies the way they wanted, or the way they thought the Messiah should, and they hated that he was still so accurate to the prophecy. So we need to keep that in mind and not become arrogant about our interpretations of Scripture and recognize that God tends to do things in very exciting ways. So, for example, you know, if you think that the end times are really going to have to look like the Left Behind series. Maybe loosen your grip a little bit because it probably won't. That's a fun story, fun series. It's a fun take on trying to put some of those prophecies together. But we should be humble enough to say, we have no idea how this is going to look. But if I'm paying attention, I should be able to identify it when I see it. It just may come. It just may come about in a way that I completely didn't see. So keep just putting that warning out there. Um, Dan, one more comment on prophecy, and then uh, I want to hand it over to Brian to talk about some of the textual evidence of the New Testament. Yeah, so one of the thing about prophecy, there's a couple types, right? There's very specific prophecies about the person, but there's also all sorts of typologies in there. It's like examples, things in the Old Testament that point to who Christ is. And just one really cool example, right? We know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. and uh, and that Jesus was the the Passover lamb that that covered the sins, right? And I don't know, something that I just learned recently is that the Passover lambs that they use for the sacrifices at the temple were born in, in Bethlehem. So even just that, right, that, that Jesus 
was the the perfect Passover lamb, and which explains the shepherds being at his birth, right? Because they were there raising Passover lambs. So, anyway, there's just all sorts of cool stuff like that, also. Yeah, yeah. So, the, and the, the, and this is an endless topic. And by the way, when it comes to prophecy, the Bible is unique in terms of prophecy. You don't find other uh, religious texts claiming a lot of very detailed prophecy from thousands of years ago and pointing to specific fulfillments of that prophecy. And if you do find anything like that, and I can't even think of a really specific example. Well, there there uh, really aren't. There, there I mean, aren't. And if you, you can't did, find prophetic utterances, I mean, okay, Nostradamus. Because they have, to, they have to come from God. You can find people who claim, and, and you can find some demonically inspired stuff that seems to have some pretty accurate suspicions about the future. But what you're not going to find is highly accurate historical text with his, with historically verified origins that come from you know, unbiased sources that resonate with the archaeological narrative and have uh, thousands of years of legitimacy behind them making specific prophecies about the future that can then be verified to have been fulfilled very specifically at later points and with still more prophecies about the coming future. You'll find vague stuff like um, there were non-human uh, influences on humanity, including uh, marriages and you know some of the Nephilim type of stuff, and that they're going to come back. You'll find that. But that's about as specific as it gets. It doesn't say when or how or where, whereas the Bible has an entire book of Revelation that says, here's how all that's going to happen, by the way, and here's how you're going to know when it's happening. So it, the Bible is extremely unique in this space and no other, you know, Book of Mormon, uh, the Quran, uh, the 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 Vedas uh, from India, they they just don't have this. They have some real interesting history in them. In some cases, especially the Indian Vedas, less so the Book of Mormon and the Quran. But uh, you, they do not have this kind of uh, detail, and they don't have prophetic evidence, and they certainly don't have the uh, the, the textual the, the textual uh, accuracy and and um, track record behind them. So, Brian, what, speaking of text, okay. text why, do we, why do we take the okay. New Testament seriously? Okay, so why do we talk about textual evidence? All right. So whenever you hear about something from history, let's talk about Aristotle. Most people have heard of Aristotle. Most people have heard of Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, right? These are the Greek things. There's, there's other lesser knowns. Like in high school, I was a drama geek. And I did a play by Euripides. And I was in the play. Okay, so who's Euripides? How do we know about Euripides? How do we know about Plato? How do we know about Pliny? How do we know about Lucretius, Tacitus, Aristotle, Sophocles, all these people? How do we know about them? Well, we know about them because we have some writing that they did. But when you're looking at historical writings, what you have is you have the date that it was supposedly written. And then you have the date of the earliest copy of it that we have found. And so then there's a range, right? There is a number of years, the time span between the original and when the first copy that we have that we can read at or look at. And by the way, since I since I was picking on the Qumran earlier, if you think Muhammad wrote it, they don't even say he wrote it, but they say it was of his words. The first copy of actual writing of the Qumran is something like 600 plus years after Muhammad's death. 
So that's the that, kinds of gaps that we're talking about where you say you, you, you so, have you have an authorship that is asserted and you say, okay, this was this is attributed to this author. This author died in year X. And the first copy of that text, because this was a long time ago and pages don't last forever and papyrus doesn't last forever and uh, and, and vellum doesn't last forever, then then when do we actually have a copy saying this was written by so-and-so at such and such a date? Right. And so that's, and so, and then the other, the other thing, so we have the time between the original, when the original is purported to have been written, the copy that first copy that we have, and then the number of copies of what we have. Okay. So you can think of any historical, like people have seen the movies like Sparta, right. And the Spartans. And when did that, when did we find out about this? Is it historically accurate? Is it fiction? Right. What, what is the deal? So if you look at Aristotle, okay, he was purported to have written his works between 384 and 322 BC. All right. 384 years before Christ. The first earliest copy of anything Aristotle wrote we have is 1100 AD, 1400 years later. And how many copies of Aristotle's works do we have? Well, we have 49 copies. That's it. Okay, that's pretty and, good, and right? Do, and do they all say the same thing? No, but no, but we don't. but we have 49 copies. That's pretty good, right? Yeah. Okay. So let's look at the the best example besides the New Testament is Homer in the Iliad that he wrote in 900 BC, and the earliest copy we have is 400 BC, which is a mere 500 years later, and we have 643 copies. And we can actually determine the accuracy is about 95% of all the copies that we have of Homer's The Iliad. Everything else, all these other names that I mentioned, Plato, for example, it's 1,200 years between when he wrote and the copy that we have, and we have seven copies of anything Plato wrote. Only seven copies. I mean, this is... This is not a lot of information. Does anyone doubt that Plato existed? No. Does anyone doubt that Plato wrote the things that we have all studied in college? No. Nobody doubts it. We literally only have seven copies of everything Plato wrote, and it was 1,200 years between when he wrote it and someone found a copy. That's what we're depending on when you look at any historical document. There's thousands of years between when it was written and when we have a copy. And there's very few copies, with one exception. And hopefully you can guess what that exception is. The New Testament was written in the first century AD, right? Between 50 and 100 AD. Actually, Pauline's epistles were probably written, started around 33 to 35 AD is when his writing started, which is so j- amazing. Just for people who may not be super familiar with that. So yeah. AD means Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. It it starts at as best as we could figure the the birth of Christ, which we can get to, you know, some and, and, and the non this, some people say it's that. And there's a non Christian version of it. So Anno yeah. Domini, which means, you know, the advent of our Lord and then B C is before Christ essentially. Right. Now they have, have what's C-E called E and B C E. C E and B C E. C E is the common era and BCE is before Common Era. It's still the exact same date. 
Same dates. You just don't have to talk about Jesus to say it. Yeah, you just don't have to talk about Jesus, but it's the same date. So okay, you so, might so, see something that's BC or BCE, or BCE or CE, and that's the same thing as BC is uh, is BC before Christ, and then AD is the same thing as CE. So there's but, some slight discrepancy around the timing of the reign of Herod, meaning the actual specific year that Christ was born was very close to zero AD. It may have been, you know, minus four AD. Right. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and that's and that, not that for this particular discussion, that's not. No, not important. Necessarily but, important. But, but what, what we, what the reason I'm trying to give the context is so that people know when we say, when was the New Testament written? Well, the New Testament was written after Jesus died and rose. And we know he died somewhere right around 30, 33. Some people might say 36 AD. Yes. And so the New Testament has to come no sooner than that because you couldn't be writing about the death of Christ before it happened. So when we say that there is a copy or a or an attribution of an authorship of some portion of your New Testament, whether it's a gospel or whether it's Paul, all these people had to have lived while Christ was alive. They may have been younger than him, but they were alive when he was alive and in many cases knew him, walked with him, etc. And so their lifetime overlapped with his. So the authorship of the New Testament really needs to happen between the 30s AD and about 100 AD, because otherwise these guys are dying out. So you have, it ha- there's kind of a 70-year gap where the whole New Testament needs and, to and, have been yes, written. And, and, we, and, there's and, a, and some already, of it goes a little beyond that with John, but yeah. And we already know that John was writing Revelation from the Isle of Patmos. We know that he was advanced in age. We know that it was approximately 90 AD. So Christ had been resurrected by that time 60 years when John was writing that book. Okay. So what is the point of talking about all this stuff? With all of these different historical documents that we have that we believe these people existed, we they wrote these things and we, we study them in college and different things. That's all great. Okay. So like I said before, Homer, 500 years between when he wrote and the earliest copies that we have, 643 copies with a 95% accuracy. So it's like, oh, that's pretty good. Okay. He is by far and away. The next the next one is Sophocles, who had 193 copies, and it was 1,400 years between when he wrote and our copies that we have. Okay. And, and I'll point out that when we say... 100 plus copies, the next question in terms of textual criticism is, okay, do they match? And the answer in all those cases is no. Well, Not, and that's, in, in some cases, it's 5% argument. In some cases, it's 25%. Yes. And, and, and the thing is, is that the accuracy of copies, like in the table that I'm looking at, Homer has a 95% and one other document has a 99% and no other document have any percent. Because and it's, it's pretty what, easy to have a 99% accuracy between two copies of something from different times. But if you but have they but they typically copies, like, that's a lot harder. Yeah. And in most of these people that we know and learned about, you know, they have 10, 10 copies, 20 copies, like down to seven and two. I mean, we have very little information about these people and there's literally thousands of years between when they wrote and, and the copies that we have. And like I said before, except the new Testament. So, it was written between, say, 50 and 100 AD, all of the New Testament letters. 
And the first earliest copies that we have are about 130 AD and a little bit later. So really close to when they were written, less than 100 years. How many copies do we have? Oh, we have about 5,600 copies. And the accuracy is 99.5% between the copies that we have. So if you want to look at any historical document from ancient times, there is nothing more accurate and more verifiable than the New Testament. It's unbelievably higher than anything else that we have. No one questions that these other people existed, these other people lived, these other people wrote these things, but we have people that are constantly calling into question that Christ wasn't even a real historical figure. He was he was made up or, you know, just on and on and on. And when you get into textual evidence, there's no comparison. If you're no, going to believe gonna... anything, you have to believe that the New Testament is accurate. I mean, that's basically what it boils down to. Now, I, I want to throw into the mix, you know, some some stink bombs because there are people out there who um, who try to spin very different narratives and they do it from platforms of authority. And one of those that I, I want to talk about is a gentleman named Bart Ehrman. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. And, and the reason why I want to talk about Bart Ehrman is because this guy, as I've talked with secular students in undergrad and talked about scripture, this guy's work came up more than anybody else's of people saying, this is why I don't buy the Bible. This is why I don't believe in it. You got to read Bart Ehrman. You got to read Dr. Ehrman. He's the man. He's the guy. He knows everything. He wrote this book and he proves that it's all bunk. So let's talk briefly about Bart Ehrman. First of all, um, he's still alive. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not talking about his, his character or him as a person. Um, I just want to talk about his work. He is a New Testament scholar. Um, he, he went to Wheaton College for undergrad. He spent time at Princeton. He's a highly accredited New Testament scholar. And he's written a lot of stuff. And he, and he, he knows his stuff well. For whatever reason, well, I think there, again, I'm not trying to talk about his character, but I think the reason is these books sell really well. He wrote a lot of books that were very critical of, um, of the New Testament historical accuracy between manuscripts. And one of them was a New York Times bestseller called Misquoting Jesus. I don't remember exactly when it was published. I could probably pull it up here pretty quickly. Uh, 2005. So that, that makes sense because, you know, I was, I was, this, this came out while I was in undergrad and hit New York, New York times bestseller. And, um, you can see why, you know, all these people were saying, Oh, finally, we have some, some scholar saying the new Testament's a bunch of bunk. And what Bart Ehrman spends a lot of time on is showing how many discrepancies there are between new Testament manuscripts. And, in his favor, when you have 5,600 manuscripts, you can find a lot of discrepancies. Now, what he doesn't spend a lot of time on is explaining how these discrepancies are totally insubstantial and extremely minor. And they may be down to the spelling of a name, the spelling of a word. And, and language was just different uh, in ancient times. And it, it, they didn't have the strict, Greek was pretty specific, but the spellings of things were, you know, they were interpretive. You just kind of phonetically put them in there. And so if you have a one name that's spelled this way 
and another name that's spelled that way. You know, if my name, my name, Joe L, uh, if somebody from the Middle East was pronouncing it, they would say Yo L. Well, they might spell it with a Y, and I'm and I'd spell it with a J. And somebody from the Spanish origin might say Joel, and somebody hears that, and they're going to spell it with an H. It's the same name, different spelling, different pronunciation, and especially if you're getting into different letter origins, you're going to have different versions of it. Does that mean it's a discrepancy? Well, no, not if everybody knows who we're talking about. Who cares how my name is spelled as long as people know who it is? So that's the kind of stuff. Now, when you get to Bart Ehrman, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but if you have the original copy of Misquoting Jesus, then there is no... um, if I, if I remember correctly, there's no appendix to it, but the second version or the second edition has a, uh, an interview between Bart and the publisher. And one of the things in that interview is they ask him, Dr. Ehrman, with all of the, uh, the discrepancies you found, how much do they change the doctrine or the interpretation of the New Testament? And his answer is, they really don't. Yeah. And, that, and, and that's that's been thrown at him in in debates multiple times, saying, "Okay, you wrote this book, you made a lot of money on it, a lot of people bought it, a lot of uh, you know, uh, you know, lo- loosely minded people in in undergrad made a big deal out of it and turned away from scripture and said, see, this proves that the that the New Testament's unreliable.' But what they didn't get to is, no, wait, so what? What does it actually change? And the answer is nothing at all of any substance. There are like two or three passages in the New Testament that are in some dispute. They're not doctrinal passages. They don't change the person or identity of Christ. They don't change the doctrine of salvation. They're just uh, anecdotes about things that Jesus uh, did, like the the um, the woman caught in the act of adultery is one of these passages. And any good copy of the Bible will notate in there that the earliest manuscripts don't have that story and the later manuscripts do. Is it true? Is it not? I don't know, but it, and is it helpful to know that people shortly after Jesus's death were attributing this to him? Yeah, it's good to know. Should we build new doctrines on it? No, because there's some some dispute on it. But the the point is, it's very easy, especially no, if, you're, if, no, if your audience no is ill informed. There's no new doctrine to build on that. It's exactly, there, story, it's not a right. doctrinal story. Yeah, no. So if if you're talking to misinformed or ill informed people, and you're an expert and a scholar. It is not hard to impress them with a whole bunch of sensationalized things about, uh, oh, here's all these discrepancies between manuscripts and the New Testament. Well, yeah, there's going to be discrepancies. There's more than 5,000 copies that that span hundreds of years in some cases. So there's going to be differences between them. But are well, those differences of any substance? And the answer is categorically no, they're not. So the, the thing that I would want to point out to people about this whole topic, this whole area, is that when people are criticizing the scripture and criticizing Christianity in general, there's a couple of tactics that they take. And one of them is to take Christian doctrine and Christian beliefs and turn them into one or two dimensional, very simplified things. Like for example, you know, sin is bad. So Christians, they they shouldn't sin. And if you sin, then, you know, you're a hypocrite and you're a horrible person. Okay. God is perfect and he's the creator of the universe. And so if he, if the Bible is inspired by God, therefore, if there's anything in any of the texts that we have that doesn't agree with something else, regardless of how insignificant it is, well, that just means God isn't really who you say he is, right? They bring up these straw man arguments and they set them up and then they try to knock them down. It's like anybody who's a true Christian, would they ever say they were sinless? 
Well, not in any of the doctrinal traditions I've been part of. We would say that we are sinners and that Jesus forgave us for our sin. However, we still struggle with it. It's still part of our lives until the full redemption of the universe. Okay. So for someone to criticize me as a Christian because I still sin sometimes, it's not really a criticism. It's agreeing with the doctrine that I believe. But they have a twisted version of the doctrine that I believe that is simplified and is simply made to be able to stand up and easily knock down with very basic arguments. And that is the same thing that we have with Dr. Ehrman. He, he's written a number of books, and the one that, that Joel mentioned, Misquoting Jesus, we also have Jesus Interrupted and, and several others that he has made a good deal of money on that are all, again, they're not changing any Christian doctrine. They're not exposing anything big. They're just like, you know, humans have continually passed this stuff down and we find discrepancies, like Joel said, when we have 5,000 documents, you're going to find a few textual errors. But like all textual errors that we find, they don't, we have not found a single one that actually changed the meaning of the text. And that is significant and important. We should also mention quickly that there are other documents purportedly from ancient times that claim to be gospels or claim to, uh, to, to merit to being included in the canon of the gospel. Um, the gospel of Judas. There are many, there, there are a bunch. And, um, are they're you talking people, about the apocryphal texts in some cases. Yes. But there are many texts even beyond that. Sure. And so okay. and what I was getting at is people who write for similar audiences as the kinds of people who gobble up misquoting Jesus and, and other books by Dr. Ehrman and, and similar authors love bringing up these, these other texts and saying, Oh, well, uh, th- there's another gospel over here. How come it's just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and not any of these other gospels? What, why, why won't you include these other documents? You know, the these um, these Gnostic texts in many cases. And what they don't tell you, what these scholars don't tell you, is it's well known that there's no historical basis for the authorship of those texts. You you have you know Gospel of Peter and stuff like that floating around out there. Well, the the earliest copies we have of it are hundreds of years after the fact and there were and there's one not several copies and more importantly there's zero early church tradition around taking any of these uh, extra texts seriously there's a reason why Matthew Mark Luke and John are the texts that are the four gospels that tell the story of the life and death of Jesus Christ and the reason why they're in the bible is because from the very beginning of the early Christian church, these were the four accounts that were taken very seriously. And there was no point where they were not taken seriously. And there was no point where any other account was taken seriously. In fact, we have um, Codex Vaticanus, for example, which is in the Vatican. Uh, If you're extremely privileged, you can go see it. If you look it up online, you can find pictures of it. It's a very, very old, complete copy. That's what Codex means of the New Testament. And it includes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and no others. And, and it's from the time that, uh, uh, that the, the very, very close within a, a couple hundred years and, and around the time that the original autographs of, this, of the uh, Gospels would have been circulating. 
And then there's a, a reference text that predates that. And I think it's called uh, P41 or P45 that's even older. And it ends with, it has the gospel of Luke and on the same page, beginning the gospel of Mark in the same codex. So what what we have is a very strong tradition to the earliest times of the Christian church on what books were considered accurate by the church. And going way back to the beginning of this podcast, Dan mentioned something where he said, look, when you read the text of the New Testament and the Old Testament, but of the New Testament, they name names and they name names and places and dates of people who were still alive while these texts were circulating. So if Paul mentions, you know, pick somebody, you know, Didymus or whoever, or whomever, and says, oh yeah, this guy was there. He saw it. Well, anybody who was reading that letter from Paul could go ask the guy and say, hey, Paul says you were there. Did you see it? Yes or no? Well, if Paul was lying, he wouldn't put in names and he wouldn't put in dates and details. And and there are many, many, many examples of that throughout the New Testament. And some of these people are uh, are corroborated by extra biblical sources of other historians, some of whom uh, you know, Josephus and uh, others that, uh, that that are mentioned. So the Tertullian. New Testament, yeah, Tertullian. Um, the New Testament really stands alone in that it is it, it's purported to be historical documents. It's from the time of the people who were living, and they all agree, and they're all talking to the same people who witnessed the same things. And they're all saying, yeah, you can go check. You know, th- this this thing happened to this guy. You know, John was here at the cross. Jesus said this to him. By the way, John's still alive. Go ask him. And, and you know, if it's false, then there's going to be a disagreement between two of Jesus' disciples in that case. And, but it wasn't And you false. also had self-referential, right? Like you had Peter referencing and mentioning Paul. Yes. Paul's writings as being scripture from God. Right. Just like we mentioned before, when we're talking about the book of Enoch and other things in previous podcasts, two places in the New Testament, the book of Enoch is quoted. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that the writers of those books knew about that book. They're familiar with that book. They quoted that book. And the versions that we have today, we can look at the same things that they were quoting. Now, that right. book was not included in canon of scripture, and there's a reason for that, and we're not going to go into that right now, but yeah, we, the point, the point Go, go the point listen is, to that episode if you want to hear it. We go yeah, into great because, detail. Because we do talk about that. But the, the point is, is that Peter references Paul as God-breathed, inspired scripture. And if you're not sure about that, that's in Second Peter chapter 3, right around verse 15, 16. You can look it up yeah. in your Bible, and what Peter said, he, he mentions Paul in the same sentence as the scriptural writings. That's and correct. So what he's attributing scriptural authorship to Paul while Paul is alive, while Peter's alive, and these are two guys who didn't even always get along, but they knew that what God was doing here. Peter's also a biblical author. He wrote first and second Peter. Paul wrote a whole lot of books in the New Testament. There and, and scholars, you won't find any peer-reviewed respected scholar who's publishing in the uh, in the major journals who will deny that Paul was a real guy really existed and wrote a lot of the New Testament. Now, they may argue about certain books and say, well, we don't think he was the author of this or the other. But then there are several books that no secular scholar will, with any credit, will say Paul didn't write. And that includes well, and uh, that's, Corinthians. You're going to find out when if you, if you dive into the writings of Gary Habermas, he created an apologetic argument strategy. And his first rule was, 
I'm only going to use the things about the New Testament authors that the critical scholars accept. So Paul is the darling of all the critical scholars because he was a scholar and they like his writings and they believe that he wrote them for the most part, just like Joel was just talking about. And so what Gary Habermas does is he proves the timeline of the resurrection of Christ only using the writings of Paul and the writings about Paul, like in Acts, and when those things could have happened. And it's a very short, very powerful apologetic about the resurrection of Christ and the, the timing of all the events that happened and how it was in a historical fact that Paul was familiar with. And critical scholars that don't accept the deity of Christ, they don't accept the reality of God's breathing the, the words of the scripture and it being the true logos of God, they don't accept all that. But from a historical perspective and a in a, in a, a secular archaeological perspective, they have to they, they can't argue with his 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 reasoning and his understanding. So how they how they try to couch it is where we would say, for sure Jesus rose from the dead. They would say, for sure the New Testament authors believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's yeah, that's how to, they would to, say it. To, to their deaths. They all believed it. They all, they all believed it to their deaths, to their martyrdom right. in many cases. They believed it. And so they're saying, I'm not I'm not agreeing that it's true, but they definitely believed it was true. And we'll, right. we should put this in the show notes or uh, in the in the uh, Telegram thread. But if you haven't looked up Gary Habermas on YouTube, it's Habermas is H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S. And there's two Habermases and one of them is a German guy. He's not the right one. Okay. Yeah. Habermas does bo- <laughs> talks about the resurrection, dude. also talks yeah. about NDEs, but especially the resurrection. Look up Gary Habermas. There's a, a lecture of his. It's an hour and 14 minutes long. It's on the Biola University channel, and it's called The Resurrection Evidence That Changed Current Scholarship. And That's if you're looking video. at the thumbnail, he's standing in front of a bright purple stage. So we'll, we'll try to link to it. But it's well worth it to listen to the scholarly consensus from a, a, a scholar um, re- citing, you know, real sources and uh, real peer-reviewed sources, and saying, "Look, based on what everybody can agree on, here's what we can conclude about the resurrection." And his conclusion is, it happened. And the sources that say that it happened are very primary sources that are removed from the actual event in some cases by only months. And it's kind of this is a little side thing, and it's kind of funny because my wife went to Liberty University. And she had classes with Gary Habermas. And so the first book that I read of his was her college textbooks that he wrote called The Resurrection of Jesus what? from I, the 80s. I knew Beth was cool. I didn't know she had Gary Habermas. As a yeah, professor. she had Gary, <laughs> Gary Habermas as one of her professors. So That's so um, cool. It, you know, just little touch points. And it's the same thing as that Joel was just talking about. You know, Didymus or Thomas or these people, they're still alive. Go ask them. It's the same thing right now. Gary Habermas is still alive and kicking. He's still out there debating people. He's still writing books. He's still doing his work. And if you want to ask the guy questions, you can still do that. And that's that's something that we should take advantage of. You know, use the internet for th- those kinds of things. It's like, go find out. We show you YouTube videos. Go go watch them. And you can reach out to some of these people and ask them questions if, you, if you're having, having concerns or whatever. So... Yeah, I, I I say we should do that. Yeah, and in some cases the clock's ticking. You know, we got we got to do it while we can. <laughs> yeah, like so, 
Michael Heiser. Yeah, exactly. That's who I was thinking of too, because he's he's been such a contributor to this field in so many ways, and and a contributor to the topics of our podcast. And um, for those of you who don't know, he's he's uh, he's not well, but uh, he he is very good about responding to um, uh, questions and posts on his website and stuff like that. So there's been a lot of really quality interaction with him. Uh, Dan, I want to give you a chance. Uh, we're coming up. Uh, you know, we're approaching the two hour mark, and we'll bring it in for a landing here at some point. Um, New Testament, uh, resurrection, um, life of, of Christ. We can talk about archaeological stuff if you want to. Um, I, I just want to make sure you get a chance to kind of have have the mic for a few minutes on uh, New Testament accuracy or things that are striking to you about it. And I know you mentioned John 19 and some of the other prophetic stuff, but I, I don't want to. Uh, I, I don't want to eclipse any thoughts you have here. Uh, yeah, I'll just go briefly. Um, you know, we talked about some of these ancient non-Christian sources, and it and there's quite a few of them. And it, it's interesting that you can using just sources outside of what's in the New Testament, you can still gather enough information about the life of Jesus to to know that he lived, performed miracles, that he died, and that people were saying he wasn't dead anymore after he was dead. And so you can you can put all that together without even opening up the Bible. And so, um, you know, I just I, I think I think I'll pretty well leave it leave it there and just say, you know, um, accepting that Jesus is who he said he was is is a really big deal, and uh, it, it's not something that you just have to uh, hope is true, but you can have uh, a very high degree of confidence that it, that it's true. And, you know, that, that the, the apostles, these people who, who walked with Jesus and then denied him as he was being crucified, ended up being willing to be put to death themselves because they, they saw him again and they, and they knew the truth of who he was and 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 who they were in him and uh, and so you know there's there's nothing more important that that we could ever talk about no decision we could ever make in life that's bigger than deciding to accept Christ for who he is and 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 pledge allegiance to him as our king and our lord so and if them and I think that's a great point that the main highlights of the the life and death of Christ and and the the miraculous nature of his life and death and resurrection are not limited just to biblical texts. They're referenced from non-biblical texts and from non-Christian sources, from critical sources, you know sources that say, well, I don't really buy this, but there's a bunch of people over there that are all saying that this guy Jesus, who is known to have performed miracles is alive, and uh, he uh, he's getting quite the following as a result. You know, so you get those kinds of references in these ancient texts. And one of my favorite ones to bring up, just along those lines, is the fact that the Apostle Paul existed and wrote the stuff he wrote, and that we have pretty good uh, evidence of his life, and that scholars really don't disagree on the fact that he, of who he was and what his life story was. The fact that you have a guy 
who was well known at early church times of being a persecutor of the church, one of the chief persecutors of the church, and uh, having a very successful career as a, as a brilliant Old Testament scholar, the fact that he hated the church and then claimed to have met Jesus supernaturally did a complete 180 and spent the rest of his life uh, defending Christ and explaining the person of Christ from the gospel and went to a martyr's death over the issue. And the fact that that's a very well-documented life and that we have a lot of his writings, that alone is something that anybody who wants to question the Bible from a place of intellectual honesty, you, you got to draw some conclusions about Jesus Christ based on the conclusions that the Apostle Paul drew about Jesus Christ, because he, he's a very, very good source. And not just because he wrote a lot in the New Testament, but he's a very good source from, a, uh, from an historical perspective. Um, Brian, any, anything else in terms of New Testament, uh, resurrection, or just other kind of closing thoughts? I, I, I want to talk just very briefly about a couple of archaeological pieces uh, around Jesus' death and resurrection, and we'll keep that very short, but anything you want to add or include in this conversation? Just a general um, ad- admonition to people. There are lots of people who criticize the historicity of Jesus and the resurrection. And what I encourage people to do is that's fine. You can look at those and you can listen to what people are saying about that, but know that there is true in-depth scholarship that there's another side. Like, you know, there's this whole idea of deconstructing your faith and you, you know, you take all the things that, were bad about it when you were growing up and you grew up in the church and you had all these negative things that happened to you. And so you, you kind of throw out all of, you throw it all out. Right. And, and you don't just take the good parts and, and get rid of the bad parts. You just kind of throw it all out and say, okay, I don't believe any of this. Well, that same idea applies in whenever you hear someone who's criticizing Christianity and the Bible and any of these different topics we've been talking about, Look at the other side. Look at the scholars who are in support of those ideas and see what their arguments are. See what their counter arguments are. And so when somebody like Bart Ehrman writes a book about all of the horrible contradictions in the New Testament and then gets gets asked a question offline about, you know, well, what does it really change? And the answer is, well, really nothing. Okay, what is the purpose? Why are you doing this? And why is it that you're criticizing Christianity in the first place? What's the reason? And so all of us need to look at those kinds of things. And if you, and if you've had bad experiences with Christian churches or Christian people, I understand that that happens. Absolutely. Um, But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Look at what the Bible says, look at what the truth says. And then change your understanding and say, okay, well, I can, I can move forward and, and realize bad things are bad things, but that does not negate the truth of the Bible. It doesn't negate the truth of Christianity. It only shows that people are still sinful and need a savior. And, and that's kind of what we need to do when we, when we think about these things, always look for that other side and see what they say, because the Bible even gives us a wonderful verse that says, you know, the matter is settled until 
you know, the second opinion is heard, right? There's always another opinion. And so don't take the first thing you hear and say, oh, well, Bart Ehrman says that all of these things are bad and they're, they don't, they're not real. Well, there's other people that can completely debate with him and take him point by point and show, show that he's in fact not necessarily correct. So that's, that's kind of what I would push people to do is be, as the Bible says, be Berean about all of these topics. And thanks, Brian. Those are great words. This total topic change, but I know you can speak to this just because it came up, but we didn't address it. What's the deal with the Council of Nicaea? When when Dan Brown's uh, book came out, what was the name of that book that uh, turned into a movie and was such a huge deal for a little while there, right around the time of Bart Ehrman's publication? Um, why can't I think of it? Anyway, uh, he part of his his fic, his work of fiction, the the movie that Tom Hanks later starred in, was Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code. Thank you very much. Was um, the assertion that the Council of Nicaea, which was an early, very, very early Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic um, council, that they conspired to limit the Bible to just the books that we have, and especially the yeah, New yeah, Testament, yeah, and that they omitted is, a bunch of stuff. Can you yeah, talk about is, that? Yeah, absolutely. So the Council of Nicaea was 325 AD. It was under the auspices of Emperor Constantine I of the Roman Empire. Okay, so there had been a transition in the new in the new in the new church, where in the in the New Testament, churches were run by what was kind of a traditional Jewish thing, where you had one or more, usually more, elders that were in charge of the local body of believers in a particular church, and there wasn't really any hierarchy going on, and so you had the the church in Jerusalem, which James was the head of, and you had Peter and you had the different apostles that were writing letters. And what they were doing was they were sending all these letters around to the different churches that were out there, but the churches were all kind of locally managed by their own elders. Well, in about 250 to 300 AD, the church kind of adopted the Roman hierarchy. And so all of a sudden we had all these new offices and we had these kind of overseer organizations that had bishops and cardinals and different things like that. This is the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. Which well, for, for those of you who come from a Catholic background and aren't real familiar with scripture, the concept of bishop, cardinal, pope, they're not biblical concepts. They're they, extra they, biblical they, Yeah, they they're, don't those, exist. Those words are not in the New Testament. They don't exist in the, in the Bible. But that's what the church kind of adopted in the Roman the Roman area, the, the area is dominated by Rome and they adopted these things. Well, the council of Nicaea, what they were doing was trying, literally they were trying to just kind of figure out, okay, what are we agreeing on that we're trusting as authoritative? And they didn't, they didn't make any arbitrary decisions. What they literally did was they got a list of all of the, the letters and the writings that the churches all over Asia minor and the Mediterranean area and all that, they got a list of all the things that they were already using and considered to be authoritative. And these were all the writings of the apostles, essentially. And, 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 then, and then you had the, the Old Testament, which was the 39 books, which originally was 26 books, but some of the books got broken up into other sections. But it's the same, it's the same data. You have 
what the Jews considered to be their own canon, which the Christians said, well, yeah, that's good enough for us. That's the Old Testament. And then you had the books of the New Testament, which are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have the, the Acts of the Apostles. You have the Book of Revelation. And then you have the Pauline Epistles. You have Peter. You have the Book of Jude. Like, you can go through and look at the New Testament that you have right in front of you right now. And these were the books that were being used in the churches on a day-to-day basis. And all the Council of Nicaea did was say, okay, so let it be written. So let it be done. Here's the list. This is what we consider to be the Christian Bible. And you know how we know this for sure is they wrote it all down and we have we have the, uh, the, the documents from the Council of Nicaea, the papal encyclicals from that council. Now, and what I want people to understand. Exactly what they discussed. That's right. And, and what I want you to understand, okay, so this is like the protogenesis of what became the Catholic, Catholic Church. However, the first pope was 382. This council was 325. Okay? So it predates the papacy. So the Catholic structure that became what what became the Catholic Church isn't actually fully formed at this point. And this was what they call the First Council of Nicaea is called an ecumenical council, which means you had a bunch of churches. They were all independent churches. They got together and they made an agreement with each other about what they would consider to be the true scriptures of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And, and if you so, actually read the Council of Nicaea documents, what you'll find is it, it was a formality. There was no disagreement that about is correct. what should be in. There, were, there was no conspiracy to omit other gospels. Everybody already knew which gospels were considered authoritative and which ones were not. Everybody already knew which uh, epistles were authoritative and which ones were not. Everybody already knew that the the Gnostic, what existed of the Gnostic uh, narrative well, at that the, time was a that, very That's a very sword. good point that you need that we need to bring up is because some uh, many of the books that are criticized today as saying, why weren't these included in the Gospels and in the Bible? Well, they didn't even exist. Yeah, many of them hadn't even been written. At they that had point. been written hundreds, in some cases, of years later. They didn't exist at this time. So the argument is, again, another straw man argument. It's trying to create a false narrative and then criticize you about why you're not, you know, agreeing with this false narrative. So anyway, yeah, thanks for asking that question. And I got to wax elephants and (laughs) it's good stuff. There's a, I, I don't have it at my fingertips, but there's a really interesting quote from Irenaeus, who was one of the church fathers. And, um, you know, he was 120 to 140 um, AD, so not long after Christ. So he, he was the generation after, you know, John died, basically. So he grew up with this. And he has a, a pretty snarky quote at one point where he says, um, some of these new gospels that are being attributed to people who are long since dead, the ink on them is still wet on, on some of them. He, it's, it's a great quote where he's basically going, yeah, th- these, uh, th- these aren't real. Um, for some of these uh, gospels that are uh, that are purporting to be of these other uh, important authorship, I, I want to hit a couple of points really quickly, just for those who who want hard, concrete things, and that's a little bit of pun intended. When you get to uh, some of the 
historical events and people around the New Testament, there were times where the uh, secular consensus was that they didn't exist unless they were proven to exist. One of those, for example, was Pontius Pilate. If you've read the uh, gospel narratives around the crucifixion of Jesus, Pontius Pilate is a, is a very important part of that narrative. And there was a time not so long ago where um, it was asserted, oh, we have no evidence that that guy ever existed until in Caesarea Philippi in Israel, they found, and it's dated to AD 26 to 36, right during the time of Jesus's ministry, um, they found a carved stone that says Pontius Pilatus. It's in Latin. It lists Pontius Pilate and is a, it's a broken stone. But if you go to Caesarea Philippi, they have a, a replica of it on display. I don't, I think the original one is probably in one of the museums, British or whatever. Um, but uh, the, you, you can no longer say that Pontius Pilate didn't exist because there is carved in stone evidence that he not only existed, but was exactly who, who the gospels say he was, when and where they say he was. Um, around, uh, 80, 90 to 200. And I'm getting some of these, by the way, from the unearthing the Bible book by Titus, Ken Titus Kennedy, um, in, uh, in Rome, you find, uh, v graffiti of Jesus Christ, uh, carved into the rocks. And this is a late, uh, first century AD. So this is around the time the book of revelation is being written. So what this shows is that even in Rome, even while the the gospel of uh, even while the book of revelation and possibly the gospel of john were still in works in progress then the story of the crucifixion of jesus christ was well known and um it's mentioned here that uh josephus recorded that pilate had condemned jesus to be crucified lucian a roman living in the second century enjoyed mocking christians and he wrote how he thought it was funny that christians worshiped a man who had been crucified celsus another second century a.d roman who criticized christianity affirmed that Jesus was nailed to the cross. At the same time, Justin, who was a pagan turned Christian, wrote to Emperor Antonius Pius in defense of Christianity, mentioning the crucifixion of Jesus and how the events in the Gospels can be confirmed by checking the Roman records, such as the Acts of Pilate. Again, more evidence that Pilate was a real guy, not to mention the other important things. And, and, and the lists go on and on. Uh, in Judea and Galilee, as early as AD 41, and we're, we're talking uh, a handful of years after the crucifixion, then there is uh, the Nazareth inscription um, that is an edict of Caesar that is written uh, discussing how you how nobody better take bodies out of tombs where people are buried with large rocks rolled in front of the mouth of the tomb. And if that rings a bell, because if you remember from Matthew 28, part of the narrative that the uh, religious leaders tried to spin when they said, oh, the tomb's empty, is they said, well, Jesus' body was stolen by his followers. Now, obviously, nobody ever produced the body, and everybody who was close to it knew that didn't happen. And even the people who started the rumor knew that it wasn't true because they had the testimony of the Roman guards who said, hey, an angel showed up, opened the tomb, and Jesus left. And the and the uh, the Pharisees said, uh, just tell everybody the disciples took the body under your guard. And so that and now we have um, we have a, a stone carving of an edict of Caesar reminding everybody, hey, no robbing tomb. So it was it was kind of a an act of propaganda trying to perpetuate that uh, tomb robbing can cause all sorts of confusion of who's dead and who's alive. 
So there's, and we could go on and on, but I, the reason I'm mentioning these is because I think it's important that we realize that these are real people and real places and real events that really happened and that all the sources across the board agree that these are real people, real places, real things, real events that really happened. What they don't agree on is the so what. And that's what we keep coming back to. Jesus was a real person. He was prophesied in the Old Testament for thousands of years. He was born and lived and died and rose according to those prophecies and in fulfillment of those prophecies. And the so what of it is that that pertains to you and your salvation because that was the whole point of what he was doing here. He was paying for sin on the cross. He was providing a way for us to be resurrected in, in his kingdom. He was defeating, he was committing a, a great act of spiritual warfare. He was defeating death. He was defeating evil. There, you know, the, we, we see the side of his uh, death and resurrection that is really good news for us. Well, it was really bad news in a lot of the spiritual world because there was a spiritual rebellion against the, the Lordship of Christ. And he crushed it in that, in that moment. And we're going to see at some point on this side or on the other side of our, of our life and death, we're going to see the, the total conclusive decisive victory where every knee bows and every tongue confesses in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's the, so what is, what do you do with that? And the Bible is a, a, a consistent document that is unparalleled by anything. There's nothing like the Bible in, in all of human existence. There is no other book that is inspired by God that has the, the length of authorship, the consistency of message, the fulfillment of prophecy, and the historical uh, evidence of its accuracy. There is no other book or writing like that. So if you haven't taken the Bible seriously in the past, or you took it on blind faith, or you felt bad around people who criticized it because you didn't know how to answer them, we hope that this, um, this episode of the Mystery Bible on podcast has given you something to really chew on and think about. Everything we've mentioned here, you can do your own deep dive. You can do your own homework. Some of you like doing that stuff, and we've provided a, a handful of resources some of you don't like doing it and just want to take our word for it. And, and I hope that we've done a, a good job of providing that for you. So with that being said, we appreciate each of you listeners. I want to thank Dan and Brian for bringing their knowledge and perspective to this topic. We want to thank um, all of you for sticking with us for this couple of hours. And uh, we want to remind you that there are lots of people who need to hear this stuff. There, the, this this narrative that we've discussed tonight on scripture is not a well-known perspective on scripture. Some people are lucky enough to grow up being taught this, but there are many people who are taught that the Bible is a collection of old fables and you really don't know what it said and nobody really can be sure. And, you know, you really got to go on blind faith or if you're really uh, intellectually enlightened, you just disregard it. That's false. And so if there's anybody that you know that needs to know that that's false, please share this this episode with them. They can go do the research. They can look up and fact check the stuff we've said. And, you know, and, and it's, it's there. The, the sources are there. We're not making stuff up. The, um, the, the, the hope and intent with this is that it strengthens the faith of those who already trust scripture 
and that it provides some traction for those who are thinking about trusting scripture that never have. And if that's you and you're wondering what to do with this, take it to scripture, take it to Christ. If Jesus is real, if he really rose from the dead, talk to him about it. You can also contact us at mysterybiblelon at gmail.com if you have any questions or feedback. You're also welcome to join the, uh, the Telegram thread where we give a little bit more kind of regular update on what's going on and share, you know, uh, uh, tunes or, or memes or anything else that we think is, uh, is relevant to the topics. So we thank each and every one of you for being here. Please uh, share the podcast. Please rate and review us on iTunes and other platforms. Um, but most of all, uh, please open your Bible and take it seriously, uh, more seriously than you ever have. We love you guys, and we look forward to joining you on the next episode. Thank you.